Hi, I'm Jerry Howard, the Chief Executive Officer of the National Association of Home Builders. And I am not Jim Tobin, Chief Lobbyist for the National Association of Home Builders. No, you're, 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 I would say you're much better looking, but that would be a stretch too. Wow. Joining me today is Paul Lopez, who is the head of our public affairs uh, group, who's substituting for Jim, who is on a well-deserved vacation golfing in Ireland. Uh, I can say this for certain, that the golf courses in Ireland will never be the same. <laughs> <laughs> now, he's just taking his family there as well. Let's be fair there. Yeah, but he's golfing for a week, which means that uh, most of the fairways in Ireland will become just gigantic sand traps. If you've seen Jim Tobin <laughs> play golf, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. That's pretty funny. But anyway, Paul, thanks uh, thanks for joining me here today. Happy to be uh, here. Uh, Paul, the, I actually have to give Paul credit. The idea for these podcasts uh, came from Paul. He has uh, been dutifully coaching Jim and I for the last uh, three episodes, and so now it'll be Interesting to see how he does behind the microphone himself. Paul, why don't you tell me uh, a little bit about what you and your team do, uh, not just for NHB, but for the average listener, for the average builder out there in the field. How can the public affairs group do something that relates directly to their business? Well, basically any information that we send out to the press and to the members and to the public come through my shop. So if you heard about NHB, it's because we were a part of it. Thank you. That's uh, that, that's that, that's really true. He's laughing because I put him on the spot. We had not rehearsed that question. That's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> let's 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 talk about uh, let's talk about you, Jerry. You know your favorite. Enough your favorite... about you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's talk about your favorite topic. You. Uh, <laughs> you just came out from meeting with Mark Calabra. He just got sworn in. How was that? Uh, Mark did get sworn in today. It was interesting. It was uh, a fairly large gathering. A lot of people representing uh, the housing industry were all present. I had a opportunity to talk to Secretary Carson for a few minutes, which uh, is always interesting. I talked to Brian Montgomery, uh, the acting deputy secretary and the full-time FHA commissioner. Talked to him a little bit. Let me walk you back. I, I think a lot of our listeners may not know who Mark Calabria is. So who is Mark and why, why, why should we care? Oh, Mark Calabria is a former NHB economist, believe it or not, who was sworn in today as the, uh, the regulator for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the head of FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Administration. So Mark will be intricately involved in regulating uh, what the government-sponsored enterprises can do. And I think more importantly, from our members' perspective, Mark will be leading the charge in defining what their roles will be going forward. Now, and, and we, we feel good about his, his nomination, right? Well, we feel good about it because we know Mark really well. And make no mistake about it, the people out there listening Mark Calabria is a libertarian. He would like to see as little government involvement in the mortgage markets as possible. Having said that, he's also a very bright guy who realizes that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are deeply ingrained in our housing finance system That to the point where you can't just privatize them and send them away. Mark knows he can't do that. Um, he will be looking to potentially shrink their footprint as much as possible. But at the same time, during his confirmation hearings, for example, NHB planted a question up there asking Mark about the potential role of the GSEs in, in the AD&C arena, and Mark didn't shut that down. In fact, he said that there probably is a role. So I think that you've got a guy there who's very bright, who has very firm and strong philosophical beliefs, but is also pragmatic enough to know that he now moves markets with everything he says and does and understands the, the weight of that responsibility. Do you think this is the year that GSE reform finally gets done? 
I think you're going to see a lot get done administratively, Paul. I think the window for doing anything legislatively is narrowly closing, but I think what they're doing is setting the stage either for next year or, more importantly, for the next uh, after the next election. Speaking of the administration, you also met with Secretary Acosta recently, didn't you? I did. I met with Secretary Acosta actually just a few moments ago. I left his office. Uh, Ed Brady, who is the uh, president of HBI, the Home Builders Institute, and I went over there. It was a privilege for me to introduce Ed to the secretary uh, because HBI, as uh, as you know, and some of our listeners, uh, is very involved in workforce development. And in fact, at one point was the single largest uh, Job Corps contractor. So Ed and the secretary talked a lot about Job Corps, uh, as you might imagine, in a, in a conservative administration. The secretary has some ideas that are novel on uh, the way he wants to reform Job Corps. But Ed did a tremendous job in, uh, in, in asserting HBI into that process and assuring the secretary that HBI wants to play a productive role in that process. And then the secretary and I talked about a couple other issues, uh, not the least of which uh, is, the, is, is the, the rule that precludes teenagers uh, from using uh, power equipment so that we could train somebody in HBI, but they can't get a job then using power tools. Really? Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the secretary pointed out to Ed and, and to me that it goes farther than that. Uh, 16 and 17-year-olds are not allowed to deliver pizza uh, anymore under federal law because driving a car is a hazardous equipment, nor are they allowed, and this will be interesting, to adjust hospital beds. <laughs> so the traditional candy stripers that we knew when we were kids right. can't adjust the hospital beds of patients, or if they're working as part of a training program uh, to, to do emergency EMS training. They can't adjust hospital beds up or down to help the patients get into them. Now, it seems like we've gotten a little carried away with some of our laws in that regard, I got to tell you. And that's one of the things that NHB is known for, right? Going in there and making sure that we start removing some of these regulations. Exactly. And so we were talking about power tools. The Department of Labor is going to start with some of these uh, other more actually ludicrous uh, laws that are on the books and go from there. But we had a good meeting with the secretary talking about some of the other regulations that, that we're dealing with. And, in fact, uh, the secretary expressed an interest in coming to speak to NEHB at some time in the future. This was in Ohio when you guys where you guys met? No, it was right here in uh, his office this morning. I thought you were in Ohio recently. I was in Iowa. Iowa. Damn See, it. Paul's from the, from the West Coast, ladies and gentlemen. To him, there's a West Coast and East Coast, and the rest are flyovers. So builders from Iowa and Ohio. He just got you confused, and that ain't right. My apologies. My apologies. I misspoke. How was Iowa? I wonder if Jim Tobin would have gotten that confused. Easily so. <laughs> <laughs> Iowa was great. Uh, we went out there, met with, uh, uh, had breakfast with the executive offers, uh, officers from the Ohio associations. Uh, then we went up and met with uh, the governor and the lieutenant governor, talking not only about workforce development, but the provision of affordable housing in Iowa. And I got to tell you, Governor Reynolds and her team, uh, couldn't have been, A, more hospitable, but more importantly, they could not have been more up to speed on the issues which impact our, our, our builders. Do they have a, an affordability problem in uh, Iowa? They certainly do, particularly in rural Iowa. The, the, really? the, the provision of affordable housing in rural Iowa has gotten to be a real problem, uh, but the governor is, is, is out in front of it trying to tackle it. And I got to say that uh, the HBA out there, the state HBA and the locals have a tremendous relationship. Uh, with the people in their state capital, and they really represent exactly what our builders uh, are in, in their state, and, and they do a terrific job. Excellent. Now, I also have some 
other good news is that the HMI came out this week, and it looks like it ticked up a little bit again, but up to another point, I think, to 63. Now, our, our members are telling us that they're seeing the want, the demand for housing, but that affordability, going back to what you were just talking about, is the key problem that they're seeing across the country. I mean, do you see that kind of continuing throughout the rest of the year? Well, we're, we, first of all, let me comment, uh, although I haven't gotten a chance to review the data on the HMI, not surprised that it would tick up a little bit at the end of March, the beginning, or the end of uh, April, the beginning of May. Uh, I am surprised um, that housing affordability hasn't taken a greater toll on the HMI because as I travel around the country, builders everywhere, from Iowa to Ohio, and from, from, from Maine to Minnesota, Maine's in the East Coast, Paul, Minnesota, dead center north. Good tip. Uh, uh, builders talk about what's going on, what the problem is, and it's all housing affordability. Uh, as you know, Chairman Ugaldi has made housing affordability the number one issue for NEHB this year. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, I think that governors, whether they're Republican or Democrat, uh, are very quick to sign on with us and say we have to do something uh, to help people be able to afford either the rents or the mortgages for, for an average house. So speaking about economics, our guest this week is our very own Robert Dietz, and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about what's going on with economics and what he sees in his forecast for 2019 and beyond. First of all, let me congratulate you for securing Rob as a speaker. Uh, Rob spends more time on the road probably than anybody at NEHB except for me. He's always gone somewhere. So when we do see him, it's really a thrill for all of us. So <laughs> Uh, for for the listeners to be able to ha- hear Rob's forecast, I think is 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 a great coup and a great opportunity. Uh, and, and I'm joking. Rob does travel a lot on our behalf. Uh, he's very well respected, not only out in the country, but more importantly here in Washington on Capitol Hill and in the administration. Rob is acknowledged as the foremost housing economist in America, and we're very very proud of that fact. So with that, let's bring him on. All right, Rob. Thanks for coming. It's good joining you guys. So recently you spoke to our board in regards to what you see housing is going to look like in the next year or two. Can you tell us what you told them? Sure. So the the forecast actually for housing, the overall economy has actually improved a lot uh, over the last few months. Uh, The big reason for that is the Federal Reserve, which had adopted a really aggressive hawkish view of the economy going into 2019. They, They expected, for example, to raise interest rates four times this year. They've backed off of that, and in part, some of that was due to looking at uh, what are called the soft indicators of the economy, including the housing market index that we do with Wells Fargo, which is our, our builder confidence measure. And what it what it showed last fall was uh, a fairly substantial drop in single family builder confidence uh, with respect to going into 2019. Well, now things have improved a little bit. The Federal Reserve has adopted this more dovish position. I think there's a general expectation now that the Fed is not going to raise interest rates in 2019. And so we're going from what we were categorizing, at least at the Builder Show, as a bumpy landing for the economy with maybe the prospects of a growth recession. We're now looking at more of a kind of a soft landing with modest growth rates for single-family construction and apartment construction. But the big challenge, of course, remains housing affordability. So when you say things are better, what's your forecast in terms of growth? So we're looking at about a 2% growth rate on single-family starts. We think multifamily construction will be up just a little bit, uh, single-family doing a little bit better. These are reduced growth rates from what we've seen in recent years where, for example, single-family construction was near uh, 10% growth rate in 2015 and 2016. So the industry is slowing down in terms of its growth rate. 
uh, but it should continue to expand. And the reason why is that housing demand continues to grow. Uh, the demographics are really favorable for home building. Uh, the peak age of the millennials is in their upper 20s, and they're, they're moving into their 30s. Uh, the unemployment rate is low, and we're finally starting to see fairly strong gains in, in income and, and wage growth. So the demand side is good. The, the challenge is really the housing affordability considerations, and we would be growing faster if we could tackle some of those housing affordability concerns. And those come mostly in the form of higher construction costs. So the industry has been dealing with a labor shortage for a while. Regulatory burdens have been growing. And those factors increase the cost of construction, particularly on the single family side, and then limit the number of prospective home buyers. So the home ownership rate is held a little bit lower than where it should be, given the demographics. We're not building enough homes and, and just kind of put it into scale. We probably should be building about 1.1 million single family homes a year, this year, we expect to build somewhere under 880,000. So we're underbuilding by several hundred thousand units. Ultimately, the people who pay for that are those renters that want to get into single-family homes and face really tight inventories in their markets, both on the existing home sales side and the new construction side. Right. Now, you travel across the country, I mean, more than anyone I know, maybe Jerry beats you by a couple of weeks a year. <laughs> are you hearing that same tone and same messaging from across the entire country in regards to what our members are telling you? The concern over housing affordability is almost universal. Every single market you go to basically says, wow, you know, the cost of development, the cost of developing land, the cost of complying with state, local, and federal rules associated with building homes and developing land, those have all gone up uh, a lot over the last few years. And while we know that demand for single-family homes is out there, we just can't build exactly at the price points that they need. And that's the reason that the, the Federal Reserve's actions, for example, is really helpful because we were not only facing higher construction costs, but interest rates were also rising. So that the combination of demand side, higher cost of servicing a mortgage, and then the higher cost of construction was really crowding out a lot of buyers. Um, so yeah, it, it's clearly worse in some parts of the country. I think everywhere kind of complains about it. Right. Uh, coastal markets, high cost markets, high tax markets, are facing that housing affordability concern. Uh, a good example, for example, a lot of markets in California, only one out of 10 home sales are affordable to a typical home buyer in those markets. Nationwide, it's, it's right now about a little under six out of 10 home sales being affordable, but that challenge is growing and it's going to be a key advocacy issue going forward. So what's the advice that you give our, our, our members in regards to how to keep their business growing in this environment? So you need to uh, focus on the local data. Uh, you need to be cautious about uh, cycles and you need to be sure about where that future demand pipeline is, is coming from. So, you know, study your markets. If you've got a market like uh, markets in Florida, for example, they're growing four times as fast as the nation as a whole, that demand is there. It's just a question of, are you building the right product? Right. Uh, in a lot of markets uh, where population is either flat or even declining, uh, you know, maybe teardown construction, maybe remodeling is really the, the market to be in. You want to be a little more cautious about owning and developing lots. Uh, in places where there's a lot of job growth, the challenge is can you build entry-level single-family housing? And, uh, you know, there's some examples of where it happens and it works. Uh, they're, they're typically places where land is relatively cheap or where you can build more units with higher density. And that would be places where the regulatory rules allow you to build single-family detached on smaller lots, or townhouse construction, which last year grew by 14%, mm. which is a real indication that in markets where you can build a single-family product that's for sale, 
that offers an ownership opportunity, that product's going to move provided the community will actually allow you to zone for it. Is there an impediment for construction loans? We're seeing construction loan growth uh, slow. In fact, at the end of 2018 and the fourth quarter for the first time in almost five years, the outstanding stock of AD&C loans declined. Uh, and that was due to the fact that over 2018, the uh, average interest rate on these kinds of loans increased somewhere between 50 and 75 basis points. Mm. So where we've been talking a lot about the labor shortage, uh, lumber costs, and these other supply-side headwinds, we always indicated that lending for builders was one of the, the constraining factors in housing affordability. At the end of 2018, that really moved up in terms of uh, an issue that we need to look at, and we'll be talking about it more in 2019. Is it too early to talk about whether or not the tax credit worked or not? So in terms of tax reform and its impact on housing, we're, we're still looking at the data. Uh, there's clearly some parts of uh, the country where housing demand fell back uh, a little bit as people adopted to the new rules. Uh, the state and local tax deduction cap of $10,000 is having an impact. Mm -hmm. I will point out, and you don't see a lot of this in, in media interviews, but it's important to note, in places where that $10,000 cap is in place, a lot of those taxpayers got $0 of state and local tax deductions previously because they were paying AMT. And one of the things that the tax reform bill did was if you used to be in AMT status, you're no longer going to be. 95% of AMT taxpayers are now in the ordinary regular income tax. So, you know, I think we've got to look at the data. Um, clearly, there are some markets that, that slowed down. It's going to be a concern in those high-cost markets, but there are also some upsides namely that buyers are going to be able to save for down payment faster because mm. of that double standard deduction. And then income growth is accelerating as we go forward due to tax reform. Your long-term forecast basically shows more of the same, right? It's kind of slow and steady all the way probably for the next three or five years. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, it's a bad thing if you want to grow your, your business more aggressively. I think it's a good thing that our forecast indicates that we don't see the market getting out ahead of itself. The, right. the builders are remaining cautious. They know what happened 10 to 15 years ago, so you don't see this kind of wild uh, land market right now. But what you see is a, a kind of a modest growth rate moving along with job growth and, uh, and, and population growth in markets. And there are a lot of sort of positive drivers for the market right now. We've got an aging housing stock. You've got, again, millennials moving from their 20s and 30s. But then there's the, the challenge side, the housing affordability going down due to the fact that we've been facing for a long time labor shortages, volatility in building material pricing, and now it's a, a tighter financing market for businesses in terms of builders and land developers. Is labor still an issue in the marketplace? Labor is absolutely an issue. And it was one of the things I actually got uh, a little bit wrong in, in 2018. I, I thought 2018 would be the year in which the labor shortage didn't get better, but stopped getting worse. And as, as we saw a little bit of slowing in the labor market, you know, maybe some of the data would indicate a little leveling off of the labor shortage. That didn't happen. In fact, right now, the industry is short about 300,000 construction workers, uh, challenging, uh, you know, the industry, the ability to expand due to the lack of workers. So it's not only a question of whether over the next five to 10 years, we can recruit additional workers into the industry, but they have to have the right skills. Because what you see in terms of the intensity of the labor shortage right now is skilled framers, skilled plumbers and electricians. That's not going to go away quickly. And there's a lot of discussion. You'll see this if you attend conferences or sessions or trade shows. A lot of discussion of the ability of robots to come in and replace individuals. Right. 
That may happen at the margins, but you know, really what we need is increased worker productivity, and that comes about by bringing people into the industry and training them. And that's something that NHB, the local associations, Home Builders Institute, and the National Housing Endowment are really going to have to focus on over the next five, 10 years. Is building materials also something that we need to look at? I mean, I know that lumber was, you know, went crazy last year. It's been down. I mean, do you see any signs of any hot flashes in, in, in the market? <laughs> so there's no signs right now that we'll see lumber accelerate like it did in 2018. And, and just as a reminder, I, I, you know, builders know this in their soul, but uh, lumber prices at the middle of 2018 had gone up more than 60% since the start of 2017. It was adding easily eight to $9,000 per price of a, a single family home. But we expect some gains in lumber prices in the spring, particularly as the market goes from last fall when there were a lot of dampened expectations about the growth of building. to so the spring now where we expect these modest growth rates, that should increase the demand for lumber and push the pricing up. What we're concerned about over the next two to three years is the potential for this kind of volatility, for these kind of roller coaster rides and individual building material products. Right. And frankly, the solution for that is to try to resolve some of the trade disputes that we've got. Now, some of the actions taken by the administration are clearly part of a negotiating strategy, but the sooner we can get a renewed softwood lumber agreement with Canada, as soon as we can resolve some of the steel and aluminum issues uh, with China, which would help remodeling and multifamily construction, the, the more certainty we'll have about building material pricing. And it's, it's that uncertainty right now that I think is responsible for kind of holding back some of that optimism among builders. Is there one piece of advice that you always tell builders moving forward as to, you know, in terms of their business practices, like what they should be looking for or what advice you can give them in regards to not overbuilding? I mean, wh when you're traveling, what's the one core message that you want to convey to the builders? Cautious optimism. Uh, be, be cautiously optimistic about the future. That The demographics are really on our side, but you really have to watch the ability of the cost side to get ahead of itself. So you'll hear builders say, you know, I could expand my business a little faster, but I don't know if I'm going to have those subcontracting crews to be right. able to come. The other thing is from a strategic perspective, what we see clearly in the data is the ability to grow the industry right now is concentrated at that entry-level market. Mm. And that's easy for an analyst to say, you know, builders sort of laugh and say, yeah, sure, I would love to be able to build a right. $150,000, $200,000 house. Right. So if you're in a market where you can do that and the jobs are growing, build away at the entry level. Right. In other markets, it's going to be trying to find creative solutions. In some cases, it means bending the cost curves. In other places, it means townhouse construction or other ways to add density. Uh, but that entry-level market, that's really where the, the market can grow over the next four to five years. Dr. Robert Dietz, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.